It's me. Hi. I'm the problem. It's me. It's me. Hi. It's just me today, friends. Today's a solo episode of the Sobriety Diaries, which I don't do that often, but I've been feeling a lot more these days. I feel like I've got a lot to say. I feel like I want to share it with all of you. So sit back, relax, grab a cup of tea, grab your morning coffee. It's just me and you, friend. Let's open the diary on queer recovery on the Sobriety Diaries. Happy Sober Day, friends. Welcome to the Sobriety Diaries. My name is Nate. I am a grateful recovering alcoholic seven years from my last drink. The Sobriety Diaries is a video podcast where we share powerful stories of recovery told by those who lived them. Check us out at thesobrietydiaries.com for all things podcast related. And for all our video interviews, head over to youtube.com slash Nate Kelly. Also, please share this podcast with just one person in your life who may still be struggling. You just never know what they may need to hear today. Recovery is possible. So I feel like I talk a lot on other podcasts and you know, sprinkle it in during my interviews regarding recovery in the queer community and how, you know, I like to lend my voice to both the online recovery community and the queer recovery community. I feel like I don't often dive deeper into recovery in the queer community, addiction in the queer community, the horrible astronomical suicide rates attributed to addiction. And these are all topics that I am passionate about and want to share with you in hopes of garnering more attention, in hopes of opening that dialogue and starting the conversation with others. So that's what we're going to do today. And I want to start with a quote that sort of encapsulates my thoughts on this topic as well. The quote comes from B.D. Lyons, who is a well-respected author and advocate in the LGBTQ community. He has written many articles and is published hundreds and hundreds of times. And BD says, it is well documented and confirmed that our queer brothers and sisters experience substance misuse issues at a higher rate than our cis hetero counterparts. It is an epidemic with no vaccine. And I think in today's society with the heightened awareness of an epidemic or a pandemic and sort of the vast effect that it can have worldwide and how vaccines can counteract that. I think it perfectly speaks to most of what I want to touch on today. So for many years, I didn't know the significance of the trauma that I had experienced in my life. And I oftentimes said, you know, I had a great childhood. There was no trauma. And, you know, I, I started drinking socially and, you know, it snowballed from there and yada, yada, yada. And I 
stand by that. I had a great childhood, but I definitely had trauma and traumas come in different shapes and sizes and circumstances. And, you know, especially being a part of the queer community, I think there are societal traumas that we don't even realize that we have been exposed to or that even are traumas in our mind or the minds of others. So one key area of new knowledge and of analytics and statistics about addiction in the queer community definitely relates to trauma. And like I said, trauma is is varying uh, severity and in different shapes and sizes. It can be family, it can be work-related, society-related, but it, it's really the unexpected occurrence or set of occurrences that threatens stability, safety, and wellness. Our responses to trauma are also varied based on the experience itself can warrant the severity of reaction to the trauma. And and like I said, those of us in, in the queer community, especially those of us who were closeted at an early age, you know, we internalize so much that for me, at least, it, it began to develop this hatred of myself and this internalized homophobia, which, again, I don't think is really discussed. And that can be so detrimental to our psyche. And it certainly was for me. I think also it's often the case that young queer individuals filter our perceptions of of reality and what is happening around us through the lens of other people and through the lens of cis-hetero individuals who may be experiencing the same events in the same circumstances, but are not experiencing the same results, whether that's acceptance, validation, sometimes simply conversation, the results that that we experience internally are much, much different. And certainly, let me just preface or, or put this out there that trauma is is not the only contributing factor to addiction or substance use in the queer community. Uh, addictive substances and behaviors are, they don't discriminate, right? But from those I've talked to and the research that I've done, that pain and that shame that we are forced to cope with at such a young age seems to be a common experience and seems to be a contributing factor to gay men, lesbian women, bisexuals, transgender individuals, intersex individuals, and all of us in the queer community. So in the years prior to the gay rights movement or this gay liberation movement, prior to that, it was illegal for queer individuals to assemble or be openly gay or take part in gay activity. And by that, I don't mean anything sexual or over the top. I'm talking holding hands conversing with another gay individual in most cases, but there were severe 
restrictions in, in most cities and in most establishments other than a few small bars or drinking establishment. So, you know, there were very limited public places that gay individuals could gather. And with this, a gay bar or a queer bar culture emerged. This underground culture started uh, to take shape and really rising just out of fear of being in unsafe surroundings or unaccepting surroundings gay individuals seemed to flock to these places in which they knew that they could be safe and be themselves. And like I said, most times it revolved around drinking. Now, I don't want to get too historical or, or go into the history of, you know, sort of this gay uprising and uh, liberation movement. I think we've all heard the, the basics but with the creation of these safe spaces also came violence from outsiders. So it just created this additional layer of trauma and this additional circumstance or fear, really, that individuals began to internalize and thus use substances to help mute or to deal with, frankly. And all of this to say or to highlight the fact that there is this common perception or misconception of the queer culture always being tied to drugs and alcohol. And, you know, for, for lack of a, a better term or, or lack of a better description, using these substances on a regular basis, really just to be okay with ourselves or to get through life, of course, is going to lead to misuse. Of course, it's going to lead to alcohol or drug use disorder, alcoholism, however you describe it, whatever makes sense to you. And really, since the time that queer individuals felt safe enough to publicly say just that, that they are a queer individual, drugs and alcohol have always been tied to it. Cut to now, where we actually have statistics that we can look at and see this progression over the last four decades. It's just mind-boggling and so sad. So just for conversation's sake, Let's look at a couple of these statistics. Okay, so substance use and misuse. Data from the 2018 National Survey on Drug Use and Health suggests that substance use patterns reported by individuals who consider themselves to be gay, lesbian, or bisexual are innately higher compared to those reported by heterosexual adults. More than a third... So 37.6% of these queer individuals, adults 18 and older, reported in the last year to feeling out of control with their marijuana use compared to 16.2% of the overall adult population. Also in this survey, those same individuals who felt that their opioid use 
was out of control was 9% compared to the 3.8% of the overall adult population. And then of course, alcohol that we have 12.4 of queer individuals felt that their alcohol use was out of control compared to 10.1 of the adult population over 18. Now, if we couple that with mental health disorders and mental health issues or comorbidities, the numbers just skyrocket. And those numbers that I I just read may not seem that crazy to you, but if we think about it from a perspective, the majority or at least half of these individuals are still in the closet or leading a secret life. And as I said earlier, internalizing the majority of this pain and this trauma, oftentimes it leads to to some of these next statistics, which are, are just devastating. The Trevor Project reports that suicide is the second leading cause of death among young queer individuals, and the LGBTQ youth are more than four times as likely to attempt suicide than their cis-hetero peers. They also estimate that more than 1.8 million queer youth between the ages of 13 and 24 seriously consider suicide each year in the U.S., and over 75% of these same individuals admit to a substance use disorder. That makes my skin crawl and gets, gets me emotional. And I don't want this episode to be all statistics and analytics or impersonal, but I wanted to start with that so that we understand sort of what we're talking about. Now, I can certainly relate my own story to all of this. And, you know, I was very much a closeted small town kid who, you know, I, I was coming into myself and, and realizing that I was gay in the late 80s, early 90s. And there were no depictions or positive examples of gay culture or gay lifestyle in the media. One of the biggest hurdles in starting a podcast can be the overwhelming thought of all of the technology. Let me tell you, don't let it stop you especially in the beautiful online recovery space, we could really save lives. So if you have a message that you want to share and a story that you want to tell, the Podcast Host Academy can help you get there. Inside the Podcast Host Academy, you'll find courses on everything from equipment, software and editing, to presentation skills and vocal warm-ups. Click the link in today's show notes for an additional 15% off your subscription to the Podcast Host Academy and alitu.com. That is alitu, A-L-I-T-U dot com. There were no depictions or positive examples of gay culture or gay lifestyle in the media. The only example that I remember was on sleazy daytime TV. So Sally Jesse, Phil Donahue would depict, 
you know, gay couples or gay culture with this negative connotation and, you know, always associated with the AIDS epidemic or this sort of untouchable and negative lifestyle that was sort of frowned upon. So I remember seeing this and, you know, coming to the realization that I was gay because prior to that, you know, I just always had felt this difference and known that I was different from other boys and that I wasn't a girl, but where did I fit in? Uh, So when I did start to sort of equate the two or put, (laughs) put two and two together in my mind, you know, as a 10, 11, 12 year old boy and in small town, Ohio, I kind of had come to terms with the fact that this huge part of myself and this part of the person that I was just to the core, you know, I would probably never share with anyone. And as that really started to sink in and as I began to develop a bit more and you know, hit puberty and started to develop sexual feelings and, you know, realized that it was such a huge part of who I was, it became very depressing. And, you know, I kind of hit on it earlier, but that's when the sort of internalized homophobia began to develop, which is really a deadly thing for a young queer individual. So when I began drinking in high school, it was definitely socially. And, you know, we hear so often that it's the social lubricant and it helps us to be more comfortable in social settings. And, you know, we're a little funnier, we're loose, we feel more attractive, we fit in better. But when I began to realize that it quieted those fears and it quieted that pain and and sort of internalized suffering, I definitely used it for that as well. And because that pain and that fear and those voices were constant, that really drove the frequency of my drug and alcohol use just through the roof. So, you know, I'm not going to tell my whole story today. I've dove in very deep on several podcasts and I will link all the different interviews that I've done in the show notes today. I feel like it's uh, a little more conversational and a little less me, 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 me when the interview is conducted by somebody else. So I will link all of the interviews that I've done in today's show notes, check those out. And I kind of want to turn the page here and focus a little more on the positive side. And we've talked a little about addiction, but more importantly, recovery. Let's talk about recovery in the queer community and some different resources highlighting the beautiful things my brothers and sisters in the queer community have achieved. The same study that I mentioned earlier also reports that over 8% of those individuals in the queer community that have expressed concern about their substance use have also sought treatment. Over 13% with comorbidities or a substance use issue in combination with a mental health concern have sought treatment and or 
are in treatment on a regular basis. There are also support groups across the nation, over 1,750 queer-specific 12-step meetings are open and receiving individuals on a weekly basis. And the number of queer health professionals in the addiction and or mental health field has increased by 82% since the year 2000. That is huge because I think that a miss that we have is the amount of queer health professionals and the willingness or the transparency and truth that we are willing to speak to a queer health professional versus a cis hetero health professional. You know, if we're talking about sexual habits or suicidal ideations, we are much more willing to be completely open and transparent if we are talking to a fellow queer individual with whom we feel comfortable and open and honest with. So that statistic makes me so, so happy. Also, in one of the interviews that I will link in today's show notes, I actually, not that long ago, only a few weeks ago, did an interview with my friend Courtney Anderson on the Sober Vibes podcast. And we did dive into queer recovery. And we talked a lot about the existing resources and existing literature and the AA program and really how we need an update, not only in the literature and the meeting schedules, but really just the acceptance and awareness of the sheer number of queer individuals who can benefit from a 12-step program, but are really hesitant to attend meetings that are not queer-specific, simply because, frankly, just just to put it out there, the old-timers and rigid resources that are in existence, it's really archaic. The resources that we use in the rooms are To me, it seems like they are exclusive and not inclusive. We're not asking for much. We're simply asking to be included and represented in a program that is made up of probably a lot more queer individuals than you realize, and even so many more that could benefit but are not partaking because of the exclusivity. And I want to start chipping away at that. And I want to include. I am so grateful that I have this platform and that so many of you come back on a weekly basis to hear what I have to say. When when I first started going to meetings, I didn't think that I had anything to contribute to a conversation or to a meeting. And I most times would pass and not contribute to the conversation. Slowly but surely, you know, I peeled back those layers and that confidence began to build. And now I really do believe that I can add to the conversation. I can add to the rhetoric or the resources. And it's because of 
you that I continue to build that confidence. And I am forever grateful for each and every one of you that come back and really prove to me on a regular basis that that's true. So I don't even have the words to express my gratitude to you. If you just keep coming back and listening, that is enough. And I share these vulnerable moments and I share my story and my background in hopes that if someone out there is still struggling and they happen to hear this, that it will perhaps motivate them to take a step in the right direction. So if you have anyone in your life who could benefit from hearing what I had to say today or from any of the wonderful episodes that we have in their library, please share the podcast with just one person who still may be struggling and that could benefit from what we talk about here on the Sobriety Diaries. I am eternally grateful again for each and every one of you. I'll see you next week. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening today, friends. Hopefully you heard something that resonates with you. And if we help just one person, our job is done. Make sure you check today's show notes for all the information discussed in the episode and how to connect with our guest. And as always, check us out at thesobrietydiaries.com, youtube.com slash Nate Kelly, and on Instagram at the Sobriety Diaries Pod. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the show, friends. It truly helps other people to find the show. And in turn, we can help more people. Until next Wednesday, try your best not to drink and be good to yourselves. Bye, everyone.